Church fam, you can find your seats. Church family, go ahead and find your seats. Let me just say, you guys look great tonight. Everybody kind of dressed up a little bit. I didn't get the memo. Um, this is as Christmassy as I get, I guess. Um, hey, um, I just want to say, like, you know, we talked to Hannah, talked tonight about just the, that announcement from the angels and the great joy that the angels announced was coming to the shepherds and how the shepherds rejoiced. The, uh, the second greatest sound of rejoicing this year was when we told the kids in kids' ministry that they didn't have to stand up here and sing a song. They were like, yes! Like, we're just going to read you a story, and all you have to do is sit there and look cute. And they got the answer right. Can we just give them a hand, right? Also, can we just celebrate with Jeremiah and his family the, the decision that he made public tonight just to go public with his love and trust of Jesus and invite Jesus into his life? Uh, that is awesome. So um, one of the things at Adventure uh, that, that we do, right, we want to, to build disciples. We want to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. If you're going to kind of stick a label on Adventure in terms of what kind of church are we, we are a disciple-making church, which means that at any point, any one of us can step into this ministry movement that Jesus started uh, of disciple-making. And one of the things that we do here at Adventure is, is we've got a student ministry uh, that I think is one of the greatest student ministries in the city. Uh, we've got amazing student pastors. We've got amazing student leaders. Uh, and we have incredible students. And our students don't just have to sit on the sideline and watch the grown-ups do stuff. Uh, we believe that our students have within them the ability to lead. Jesus' disciples, the only one of Jesus' disciples that was over the age of 20 was Peter. So Jesus was like the world's first youth pastor, um, which is really cool. So what we like to do is give our students the, the opportunity to kind of lead us in, in focusing in um, on this Advent season, what this Advent season is all about, specifically what tonight is all about, both for from kind of a historical perspective, but also what we see uh, in Scripture as well. So I'm going to hand it over to them. Take it away, y'all. The final week of Advent is all about love. Jesus focus, focused on a new kind of love throughout his ministry. Jesus said we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said we are to love the people around us and ourselves in the same way. Love encompasses Jesus' entire purpose for being on earth. He came to be a living, breathing example of God's love for us. The Bible tells us that God is love, that whatever believers in Jesus should be known for is how we love, and that love is what lies at the core of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But, whatever, but what we celebrate at Advent does not love alone, but that in Jesus we find love, and love joins together with hope, peace, and joy. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He gave into the very world he created, but the world didn't ever recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth, resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. From his abundance, we have received one gracious blessing after another, for the law that for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. 
He has revealed God to us. Let's pray together, Jesus, tonight as we read your word, as we open uh, this opportunity. We, we start with your word that explains who you are, that you are the word. The word that put on flesh that came and dwelt among us. And with you comes hope, real hope. Not hope in, in material stuff, not hope in the things that at the end of the day, Lord, break and fade and, and wear out and get replaced by a newer, better version the following year, but, but real hope that lasts forever. And, and joy, joy that's not uh, an emotion, it's not happiness. Joy is a mindset, it's an attitude, it's a posture that we take with our spirit. Joy can exist with things like mourning and grief. Joy can exist with things like happiness and excitement. You bring joy, not that fades, but lasts forever. And peace, peace that isn't the absence of conflict, but is wholeness. It means to be made complete. Jesus, you are the only one that makes us complete. And, and, and this last one, Lord, love. Love that, that is, it's not a junk drawer word like we use today that we kind of throw at everything, uh, but this is your heart for us. And the way you demonstrate your heart for us is by sending your son to live a life just like ours, to die a death, Lord, but then to be resurrected, to save us from sin and death. Uh, so tonight, Jesus, we want to make you a big deal. We want to celebrate you because you're worth celebrating. We want to get to know you because you're worth getting to know Jesus. You change everything about everything that we are. And so tonight, Jesus, we want to focus in on you. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Everybody said, amen. Can you give it up for, for Zoe and Grayson? I mean, standing on stage in a full room, reading 18 verses, that's not easy. Um, so some of you in the room, you may have read a book that is now kind of famous. It's written by a guy named Stephen Covey. It's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's written in the 80s, but it's still read today. And, and in this book, he, he introduces kind of two different mindsets, two different mentalities that, that kind of form the framework of how we see and understand and interact with the world around us. And that mindset, that mentality, that framework ultimately forms kind of the operating system that we use to, to run our lives. The first one that he introduces us to is one that's called the scarcity mentality, which basically the scarcity mentality says this, there's not enough goodness in the world for everyone, so I need to make sure I get mine or somebody else will. Covey, he says this, he said, the scarcity mentality is a zero-sum paradigm of life, which if you don't know what that means, a zero-sum paradigm means that whatever is gained by one is simultaneously lost by another. Whatever you want to gain for yourself, you're going to have to take from someone else, or whatever you lose for yourself gets taken by someone else. He goes on to say this, that people with a scarcity mentality have a hard time sharing things like recognition and credit and power or status or influence. He says they also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the successes of others. And when you think about a scarcity mentality, this all makes sense. Because somebody else gaining credit or recognition or, or power or status or, or influence or, or, or finding success means that, that somebody else lost it. For somebody else to find those things, to find goodness, means someone else had to lose it. Because in order for, for yourself, right, if you want to find goodness for yourself, you're going to have to take it from someone else. It's going to have to come at somebody else's sacrifice at their expense. Scarcity, at the end of the day, is all about winning and losing. If you're losing, it means somebody else is winning. And by winning, it means that others must lose. I think the great philosopher Ricky Bobby sums it up really well when he says, if you ain't first, you're Last, there we go, my people, see? You know, you know the Ricky Bobby people in the room, I love it. Yeah, if you ain't first, you're last, which makes no sense at all because there are many other places you can come in. But like, that's kind of what the scarcity mentality would have us believe. If you're not first, you're last. 
But that's just what we see on the surface. There, there's so much more going on below that waterline. When we dip below the waterline of a scarcity mentality, we find that there's way more going on. See, within a scarcity mentality, there's no room for failure. You can't fail. You can't mess up. You can't fall short. You, 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 can't, you can't fail. Failure is just not an option. Why? Well, because there's no patience available for failure. We don't have time to fail. We don't have patience for someone who's struggling. We can't slow down long enough to help somebody who maybe isn't keeping up pace in a scarcity mentality, right? People become expendable. If we live in a scarcity mentality long enough, you stop looking at people as people, and instead you see them as as a means to an end. The people around you become the the pathway or the way that you're going to find success for yourself, even if it means you find success on their backs, Right? As long as we can pull, pull our weight in a scarcity mentality, we're good. But the second we can't, the second we stop being able to perform, the second we stop being able to do the things that we did before, or we slow down, or we're not as good or as sharp as we used to be, we get pushed out and we get replaced by somebody else. The pressure is on all the time. In a scarcity mentality, we are always under pressure. We must perform and perform in such a way that we win and others lose. Why? So that we can get a bigger piece of the pie. Scarcity mentality, really, at the end of the day, it means this. We win, and as we win, we defend our positions. You you win, and then you kind of fortify these parts of your life. The places where you gain favor, you gain goodness, you hoard that for yourself, you store that up, and you fortify it to make sure that nobody else can take it from you. So that's one mentality. The second mentality that Covey introduces us to that kind of runs and operates our lives, it becomes the operating system of our lives, is the abundance mentality. Which basically says this, there's so much goodness. There's so much goodness available that that everybody can have enough and we should all be friends. Right? The abundance mentality person is the one that shows up at a rivalry game and says, I just hope both teams have fun and no one gets hurt. Have you ever met people like, they're the worst, right? Like, if we could just be honest, like some of the the abundance people in the room are like, oh, my gosh, they all want to kill me. We do. Yeah, we do. I'm kidding. Kind of, right? But, again, Covey says this, right? The, The abundance mentality flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. It's the paradigm that there's plenty of goodness out there and there's enough to spare for everybody. It results in the the sharing of prestige and recognition and profits and the ability to make decisions. It opens up new possibilities and options and alternatives and unlimited creativity. And the inner cynic in us, now we're not kidding, you people are the worst, right? Like the inner cynic in us hears about this abundance mentality and immediately says, like, well, that worked really well before kindergarten. Right? That worked well before in kindergarten. Like, we could just all be friends and we can all play together. And then, then something happened in elementary school. We were introduced to the real world, right? The mean streets of elementary school. For me, it was the, the mean streets and the mean hallways of Crestwood Elementary. That's where it became dog eat dog. And it's been that way ever since. The idea or concept of abundance, right, doesn't seem like it's real. It doesn't seem like it's possible. Scarcity for us seems and feels more like the reality that we live in. And if I can just be honest, that's because it is. Scarcity, that mentality, that really is the reality that we live in. And, and we're, we're conditioned to it. 
we're conditioned for scarcity, right? Our lives become these little mini competitions. We're, we're kind of in competition with people all the time. Our lives become just kind of two different modes, win and defend. We need to make sure we win what we need and what we want that's coming to us, and then we make sure we defend it. I mean, think about it. Right, for, for those of us maybe that, that are in high school, middle school, we're trying out for a team, right? There's only so many spots. There's only so many spots on the team. So, so you have to try out, which means this. You, you're going to have to prove that you're better than the people around you if you want to make the team. You win, they lose. You make it, they don't. Maybe for some of us at work, right, there's only so many promotions available over the course of the year. So what happens? You better put in the extra time, which means this. You, you need to win this. Right? You need to win the competition to get that promotion to work. So what we begin to do is we begin to sacrifice the people in our lives. Maybe it's our family, our spouse, our friends. We say, listen, i I, I got to give time over here. I've got to win this, right? So, so I need to kind of put you on the line so that I can go and win this competition at work. There's only so many promotions. I'm going to put in extra time. I'm going to do what needs to be done to get noticed by the bosses, right? I'm going to do more than my coworkers who were at one point my friends, but now they're my competition. Why? So that you get the job and they don't. Whether we like it or not, we have adopted a scarcity mentality. And it runs how we operate our lives. It runs how our world operates. It runs how our culture operates. It's the lens through which we see the world. It's the framework of how we understand life. Right? There's only so much money in the account. There's only so many hours in the day. I only have so much bandwidth for, for this or that. And when somebody like me or, or like even our students or our band or whoever stands up here and talks about, you know, this time of year is the time of year we celebrate joy and peace and hope and love, right? We go, yeah, there's only so much of that to go around, right? That, th those kinds of things, joy and, 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 and peace and hope and love, there's, there's only so much of those, right? So i got to make sure I get mine. And some of us, we find ourselves year after year left out. Like we didn't get to the table fast enough. We didn't, we didn't get to the table fast enough. We didn't get to the meeting fast enough. We didn't get wherever it was. We didn't get there fast enough. And so now all we're left with, instead of joy, peace, hope, and love, are things like loneliness and stress and anxiety. That's all that's left in a scarcity mentality. I didn't get mine. Somebody else got it. I, I didn't win. I lost. They won. And here's the thing. As we look at this, this scarcity mentality, right, there's only so much bandwidth most of the time we find ourselves running on what little we have left instead of the overflow of having enough. In fact, the word enough is a word that's foreign to us. The idea of abundance is a myth. It's not real. It doesn't seem possible. It's not in the realm of reality as we know it. And what I would say is, you're right. It's not. At least on this side of heaven, without a major shift in the fabric of, of nature and reality itself, scarcity tends to be what we find ourselves left with. But as I thought about what we're going to talk about tonight and what Christmas is really and truly all about, what, what, I, what I felt like I wanted to convey tonight, what I felt like we all walked away with was a new understanding of Christmas. That Christmas is when we celebrate the collision of our reality of scarcity and Jesus' reality of abundance. Now, I know we got a lot of friends here visiting tonight, but let me just kind of clue you in on where we've been as a church in the last uh, four weeks or so. For the last month here at Adventure, we, we, in the lead up to Christmas, we've kind of taken a different approach 
Instead of kind of reading through the typical Christmas story, we've read through the the first handful of verses, the first 18 verses in the first chapter of John, right? See, the New Testament in the Bible, the kind of second half of the Bible, starts off with these four biographies of Jesus. And you may have heard of them. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them Gospels, right? Some of you may have heard them referred to as Gospels. I'll explain why we call them that here in just a minute. But here's the deal. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They all follow kind of a similar flow, a similar structure. In fact, they're called like the synoptic gospels because the overall synopsis of each one of them is identical. But the fourth one, the gospel of John, is different. Like for starters, John reads less like a biography of Jesus and reads more like an autobiography of Jesus, like Jesus wrote it himself. Like in John, you get way more first-person Jesus you, you get to see not only what Jesus did, what he taught, what he said, but you also get some insight into what Jesus thought and he felt. John gives insight into the, like, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. John, in John, you see the first year of Jesus' ministry where the others pick up further down the line. But the main key difference is how John starts off his Jesus story when you compare that with the others. See, the other three start with things like genealogies, like family trees, and the story of Jesus that like, we're familiar with, like the story that, that Hannah read to our kids tonight, right? We, we know the Jesus story, right? It's a story of like Mary and Joseph, and, and they have Jesus in a barn and all this kind of stuff. And, and here's one of the things. I, I read this this week, and I thought it was interesting. That, see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they present a perspective of Jesus' birth, like Jesus' arrival into our reality. They present a perspective that, that's, that's kind of like earth looking into eternity, it's kind of like things that, like, like things that are temporary, like people like us with, with, with our limited understanding, people like us with our different mentalities and mindsets and, and lenses in which we view the world. It's kind of like us trying to, to, to catch a glimpse of heaven. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they present this perspective of kind of earth looking into eternity. But John, he starts his gospel. He starts the story of Jesus' arrival into our reality from the perspective of eternity looking at earth, from the perspective of heaven, looking at us. I mean, you just heard Grayson and Zoe read this, right? Instead of starting like a typical Christmas story, you know, this manger scene and all these kinds of things, which, let me, let me say, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like they're, they're Jesus stories and their birth story, like the, the, the narrative, the birth narrative of Jesus in those gospels, it's amazing, it's awesome, it's incredible. But see, John, he starts before time was time. He starts before time was time. Catch this. Like in just the first few verses of John that Zoe read, John introduces us to Jesus, who he first calls the Word, which is this Greek word logos. And it literally means this, God's promise. He says this. He says, Jesus, who was the promise of God, existed eternally, forever, outside of time. Before the world was created, Jesus existed. John tells us that that Jesus is co-eternal with God and that he is God. John explains in just a handful of verses that Jesus' essence, like Jesus' being, what he's made of, his DNA is God. And that Jesus' character, who he is, what he does, how he lives his life, that Jesus' character is the perfect reflection and the image of God. If you want to know how God lives, if you want to know what God does, if you want to know how God would live his life, just look at Jesus. John tells us that Jesus is the creator of all things. Stars and planets and solar systems and mountains and oceans and us. We learn from John that that Jesus knew 
Jesus knew and he promised that he would lay down his life to save us before he even made us. Think about that. And that should kind of blow your minds. Right? The fact that Jesus knew, hey, when I begin to make people, they're going to look at God. They're going to look at God and say, listen, God, we think we can do life better than you. We think we can run our lives better than you. So, so we're going to run our lives and you just kind of stay over here. We think we can do it better than you. So we're going to do that. And we'll let you know when we need you. That's called sin. When we look at God and say, God, I think we can do this better than you. I think I can, I can figure this out. God, I think I can make bigger and better decisions than you can when it comes to my life. So why don't you get out of my way and let me run it. That's called sin. Jesus knew that we would do that. And he knew that the only way to bring the relationship with us and God back together was going to cost him his life. And he knew that before he even made us. He knew he had to save us before he made us. And he did it anyway. John tells us that, that Jesus is the light in the darkness, the true hope that we're searching for, that, that, that no darkness, not yours, not mine, no darkness can overflow, overthrow or overpower Jesus. And, and get this, right? This is kind of how we can sum it all up. Before John tells us how Jesus was born and how he arrived in our reality, John tells us who Jesus was, who Jesus is, who Jesus has been, is now, and will always be. In 14 verses, John covers all of that. And it's only after that that John tells us how Jesus arrived. If you've got your Bibles or a Bible app, why don't you grab those, open those up. If you need a Bible, we've got free ones in the back. We would love for you to have a Bible at home. Please take one with you. If you don't have one, if you've got a Bible app with you, grab that as well. We're going we're to open up to John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 14. Here's what it says. The first word that John uses is the word and. So if you've got a Bible or Bible app in front of you, circle, highlight, underline the word and. Because you look at that and go, well, that's not that important, right? The word and, that's a pretty typical word. Like, that's not, that can't be that important. Let me just say what and means in Scripture. When John starts verse 14 with the word and, what he's saying is this verse, verse 14, and everything that follows grabs the first 13 verses and includes all of that. And means this. Everything I've said so far gets included in what I'm getting ready to say. So and is a really important word in this case. And includes everything that John has already said about who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and who Jesus will always be. And he says this, and the word, which is Jesus, God's promise. His promise to us, the eternal creator, the life giver, the word became flesh. And the whole first 13 verses the word became flesh, which means this, a living being. Not just a living being, but a living person who is subject to all of the harsh realities that come with life that we know all too well. The fact that Jesus was born, right? I know, we're, we're, in fact, we're going to sing the song Silent Night here in a minute, but, but those of us that have been in a labor delivery room, we know it's anything but silent, Right? And, like, don't get me started with a little drummer boy, like, mom's in the room. Have you ever thought, like, right after you birth the kid, here's what I want, a drum solo? No, probably not. But Jesus had to be born in a barn to a teenage mom and a freaked out dad. Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. Jesus knew what it was like to be tired. Jesus knew what it was like to, 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 to need to be fed. Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely. Jesus knew what it was like. He was like us in every way. So and, this eternal, amazing creator, life bringer, 
The promise of God put on flesh, became a living being, and dwelt among us. Which literally means this, set up camp. Right? It's, it's actually an Old Testament reference. And one of the things we've, we've been talking about as we've been unpacking this here at Adventure is, is, is a lot of the times we have to read the Bible in, in kind of the original context, right, to the people that it was written to. And so people back in this day, when they, when they read this thing, that he dwelt among us, they would have understood that phrase meant that, that he set up camp. See, in the Old Testament, people back then, they would have known that like the dwelling place of God was traditionally in this place that was called a tabernacle, which was like a tent. Right? When, when the, the, the people of God, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the Jews, when they were making their way out of captivity and into the promised land, they built this tent, which was the place that's where the presence of God lives. They can kind of worship as they traveled. And then later they built a temple, right? That's the, the presence. Like, that's where the presence of God lives. God lives in, in a special tent or in a special building. But John tells us not anymore. God, God can't just be held at an address, God doesn't just live in a church building. He doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't live in a tabernacle. Where does he live? Among us. With us. And John says, we've seen his glory. The glory is as the only son of God from the Father. Now, I've always read this as kind of like that Jesus was an only child. That's actually not what this means. What it means is that that Jesus is the unlike other, one-of-a-kind son of God, who John tells us was full of grace and truth. And again, if you're following along, Underline, highlight, circle, full of grace and truth. We're going to talk about that here in a second. And John goes on. He says, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Underline and highlight that whole sentence. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. And he says this, for the law was given through Moses. Talking about the Ten Commandments. right? The Ten Commandments were basically kind of a letter from God to us going, hey, if you want to be in a relationship together, these are the things that you're going to need to do. Don't kill people. Don't steal. Don't, those kinds of like, that's like, don't do those if you want to be in a relationship with us, remember, like, you, like, remember, I'm the only God. Don't worship anything else. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus. And John says, no one's ever seen God, the only God, who's, who's at his father's side, but he's made him known to us. See, it hit me this week that the reason John takes 13 verses to point out Jesus' nature and his identity and his power is because John knows when you and I see Jesus for who he really is and the fact that he's been that way forever, that you can point backwards all the way through time and you can point forwards all the way into the future for all time. And, and here's the deal. Jesus will always be who Jesus is. All the way back to the beginning of time and all the way forward as far as you can point to infinity, right? Jesus will always be that way forever. See, it's then, when we see who Jesus really is, that we can see that Jesus' arrival into our reality changes everything. One of the things we say here at Adventure a lot is that Bible people are just people. So I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, we think that Bible people must be kind of special, and therefore, because they're special, they get to kind of experience all this stuff. Bible people were just people. Yesterday, as I was kind of putting all this stuff together for, for tonight, I, I, it hit me, like John, the guy that wrote this biography of Jesus, wasn't always a believer in Jesus. Like, I think some of us, we, we think like, well, this guy must have believed in Jesus for forever. Nope. John became a believer in Jesus as a young man, and he grew into being a follower of Jesus. And so at some point along the way, the same thing clicked for, for John as we saw it click for Jeremiah. 
Like there's a point, right? There's a point where you go, listen, I'm ready to push all of my chips in on this. I'm ready to believe in Jesus. I'm ready for my life to be given to, to Jesus. John didn't always believe in Jesus. He had to grow into that. And so the same kind of realization that John had when it came to who Jesus really was, he wants to make sure that, that we have that same aha moment. In fact, if you turn to, to the very end of John, right, the very end of John's gospel, he, he kind of finishes off one of the last chapters by saying this, I wrote this so that all of you would have the opportunity to believe. He sums up his entire gospel, his entire story of Jesus' life by saying, hey, there's the, here's the one reason I wrote all this down. It was so that one day maybe you could believe and that you could also find life. Now, there's something I want to make sure we catch, right? It's something that's kind of been right under our noses the whole time, and we fly right past it. See, John tells us how Jesus arrived in our reality in just one verse. He says that Jesus, who was an eternal and divine person, became a living being. He voluntarily, right, took on and became subject to, like we said, every single aspect of what it means to be alive, just like us. That's the whole Christmas story in one verse. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the whole Christmas story in one verse. But catch this. John doesn't stop there. He says this in the next few verses. John, what he does is he repeats the same concept three different times. And here's just a little tip if, if you're studying the Bible or reading the Bible. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, it's, it's probably, like, that's a signal. Pay attention. Like, pay attention to what's getting ready to happen. John says this three different times in three different ways. He says that, that Jesus arrives full of grace and truth and that from Jesus' fullness, we receive grace upon grace. And it's interesting to me, when you read into the, the original language, this, this phrase, grace upon grace, it refers to drawing water out of a well. See, people back then, when, when John said grace upon grace, they would have understood that to mean that there's a well of grace that's always filled up. And that I can go back to that well of grace again and again and again, and it will always be full, and it will always, it will never run dry. So you can start to see it now a little bit, right? Jesus arrives in our reality, and when he comes, he comes full of grace and truth. He offers us his grace and truth out of his fullness. His supply of grace, that supply of grace and truth that he offers, will never run out and it will be filled up forever. So we can go to the well again and again and again. And every time we do, we're going to find more grace and more truth. I heard one pastor say it like this. It's like the bar is always open. Grace and truth are always on tap. And your tab is always paid. It's available anytime you want. Eugene Peterson translates this, these verses in the message like this. He says, that the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So we saw the glory of Jesus with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son. He was generous inside and out, true from start to finish. We all live off of his generous abundance. Gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding. All these came through Jesus, the Messiah. Nobody's seen God, not, even, not so much as a glimpse, but he says that the one of a kind, this Jesus, one of a kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him as plain as day. Did you catch it? 
See, John says things like full and fullness and, and grace upon grace and endless well. Eugene Peterson, the way he kind of translates these verses, he says that there's a generous abundance, right? That, that there is that this gift upon gift, this gift after gift after gift, an endless knowing and understanding. Generousness, abundance, endless See, Christmas isn't just the time when we throw a birthday party for Jesus. It is that. We want to throw a birthday party for Jesus. We want to make sure that that Jesus knows he is celebrated in our lives, in our homes, and in our churches. But that's not where we stop. See, Christmas is the time that we celebrate the very fabric of reality changing. Jesus arrives in our reality of scarcity, and he brings his reality of abundance to share with us. Now, I need you to hear me say this, right? The reality of abundance doesn't mean that Jesus is here to make all your dreams and wishes come true. It means that Jesus is here to sustain you, to hold you up, to keep you in the fight, to keep you in your marriage, to keep you in your family, to keep you parenting when it gets difficult, to keep you plugged in. He's here to make sure you stay plugged in, that you stay in the fight, even when all of your hopes and dreams fail. He's here to sustain you when they don't, and Jesus says he'll never fail you. There will never come a point when you seek Jesus and he says, no, sorry, today we're closed. There will never come a point when you call Jesus and he's not there. There will never come a point, right? There there, there will never come a point where Jesus says, sorry, I I just don't have it in me to do anything for you today. I'm sorry, I can't help you out this time. See, the reason that we refer to these biographies of Jesus as gospels, the reason that we hear when when someone tells or shares the Jesus story with us, we call it the gospel, is this. The word gospel actually comes from an old Greek word pronounced euangelion, and that word literally means a proclamation or a declaration. See, back in, in this day, when a king or an emperor would make a proclamation or a declaration, it was called a gospel. It was a euangelion. The king is gospeling. The emperor is gospeling. He is making a proclamation or a declaration. It's an announcement from, or a declaration from a royal person, from someone in power, that regards kind of a change of reality, a change of how we live. That's what it was. When, when a king would, would announce, when a king would declare this or that, What it would mean, they would declare that, they would send people out from the kingdom to all the corners of the kingdom to announce to all of the people and all of the villages where everybody was, hey, the king is making this announcement, what was true before is now not true, here's what is true now. What was real before, what was reality before is not reality anymore, here's reality now. That's a gospel, that's euangelion. The king now says, this is how we live. Right, that's a gospel. But the gospel, right, is the declaration and proclamation from Jesus, who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And it's the same thing. The same thing. Jesus says the reality of how you live has now changed. Jesus has come and he's arrived. He's brought his unending abundance of grace and truth into our scarcity. There are now new possibilities and new opportunities that are available to all of us. There's a new way to live your life. At Adventure, we call it the with God life. You don't have to live your life apart from God anymore. You can live your life with God, not just with him in your life, but him within you through his Holy Spirit. 
and the abundance of grace. What we receive, what we receive, the, the simple definition of grace is this, that we get from Jesus what we need instead of what we deserve. There's a new way to live in the abundance of truth. Not only what we find in the Bible and what the Bible says, but also in the person of Jesus who models the way to live it out. See, what we find in Jesus is there is a manual for life, but there is also a model for how to live it. There's a new way to live our lives. Truth from Scripture. The life of Jesus is now available to us anytime, all the time, and it never stops. See, Christmas is the time that we celebrate the fact that that what Jesus has done, none of us could ever do. We can never do it on our own. He became a living person like us in every way. Jesus moved from eternity into our neighborhood and brought with him truckloads after truckload after truckload of grace and truth. See, Christmas, church, is the celebration of the fact that the lie of scarcity has been exposed by the light and truth of Jesus' abundance. You are not disqualified from being in a relationship with Jesus. If you miss anything that I've said tonight or just hasn't made sense or I talk too fast, I know that's a real, that's reality, like that's, that happens. Hear this. You're not disqualified from being in a relationship with Jesus. A scarcity mentality would say that you, that you are. That you've screwed up too much, that you've messed up too much, that Jesus has run out of patience. He's run out of grace. You've had too many strikes. You're out. You're not disqualified for being in a relationship with Jesus. No one is too lost, is too broken, or is too far gone. Jesus has not given up on you because Jesus does not run out of grace and truth. You don't have to qualify yourself to be in a relationship with Jesus. You can't earn a gift. All you can do is receive it. See, Jesus, he proclaims and he declares to us at Christmas the gospel, which is this, that a new reality is possible, that we can become sons and daughters of God through Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That's the only way it works. And John, he closes this, he closes this introduction of Jesus by explaining to us, if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. See, maybe some of us in this room, in this scarcity mindset, we came in believing that God is mad at us. Maybe we didn't show up at church enough. Maybe we didn't volunteer. Maybe we called out sick one day when we weren't really. He's mad at us. He's disappointed in us. My marriage failed. I got fired, lost my job. He's disappointed in in the way that we treated our families. He's disappointed in the way we've let people treat us. That God's disappointed that his patience has run out on us. We've messed up too many times. We can't get our act together. We can't clean ourselves up enough. God's just kind of done with us. Some of us maybe walked in with that in the back of our minds or in our hearts somewhere. If, here's, what, here's what John says. If you want to know if this reality of abundance is real, if grace upon grace is really true, you need to only look at Jesus. Here's my challenge for you tonight. Because I know it's easy to come into a church around Christmas, Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve Eve, and you check the box, you did the church thing, then you go about doing the rest of the stuff. Here's my challenge for you, right, for, for the next couple of days. Read the book of John between now and maybe Christmas or the day after Christmas. We've already covered the first 18 verses for you, right? You've got a head start. Here's what you're going to find. If you walked into this place believing, right, that maybe that God's patience with you has run out, that Jesus' patience with you has run out, that Jesus' grace for you and his truth for you has run out, here's what you're going to find. 
Here's what you're going to find as you read through John's gospel. Pretty early on, you'll find Jesus sitting at a well and having a conversation with a woman who'd been divorced five times and was currently exchanging sex for rent. If there's grace upon grace for her, five-time divorcee and someone who is allowing, selling her body so she can have a roof over her head, if there's grace upon grace for her, do you think there's grace upon grace for you? If there's grace upon, if Jesus would sit at a well and have a conversation with her, do you think he'd sit with you? You'll find Jesus eating with, talking with, caring for prostitutes, thieves, murderers, and addicts. If there's grace upon grace for them, is there grace upon grace for you? If Jesus would spend his time with those people, if Jesus would, would, was willing to be seen with them, was unafraid to call people like that his friends, do you think Jesus would call you one? Here's the thing. You and I, we cannot out people in the Bible. People in the Bible do some crazy stuff. You cannot out people in the Bible. And, and, and here's what they found out. What they found out is what John wants us to find out. It's what I hope and pray we find out, and that's this. We cannot out Jesus' grace. You cannot. You cannot out-lie Jesus' truth. You cannot. For every, is there grace for this question that's based on our scarcity mindset, there is a Jesus answer that comes from his abundance. And church, what you will find time after time is grace upon grace and truth upon truth. Jesus at Christmas invades our reality of scarcity with his reality of abundance. And like we read in these verses, the light breaks through our darkness of scarcity. And with it comes abundant hope, hope upon hope upon hope. It will never run dry. With Jesus comes abundant peace, peace upon peace upon peace. It will never run out. With Jesus comes abundant joy, joy upon joy upon joy. You will never find joy lacking in Jesus. And he comes with love, love upon love upon love. If you in this moment tonight or maybe over the course of the last few months or maybe this year has just been one of those years where hope, peace, love, and joy have just escaped you. And that scarcity mindset would have you believe that it's just gone. If you seek these things, then look to Jesus. He's where you'll find him. He's the only place. So we're getting ready to do something we do every year here. We sing Silent Night, which we now know the song itself isn't true. But that doesn't change how cool it is. This is one of my favorite things that we do. Somebody said, well, don't you think it's kind of corny? And I said, well, we're going to keep doing it as long as I'm here, right? It's corny. Get over it. I love it. We sing Silent Night together, lit only by candlelight. And, and when you look at this light, just remember what it represents, the light that breaks through the darkness that no darkness can overthrow that no darkness can overtake. Tonight, if, if you are in this place and you want to say yes to Jesus, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before, I'll be down front as we sing this song together. I would love to chat with you about that. Tonight, if you want to become a part of a community of people like us, messy and broken, but are looking for this abundant hope and peace and love and joy, I'd love to chat with you about that. If you need prayer tonight, I would love to pray for you. As we sing and we worship together, remember what we sing and we worship tonight as we sing Silent Night. This is the night that everything changed. 
This is the night that reality as we know it shifted, not because of anything we've done, but because of the love of God sent his son to us. We don't have to live in the lie of scarcity anymore. We can live in the truth and grace of Jesus' abundance. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And tonight, Father, we, we say thank you that we get to step into a new reality that is based and built on your love and your peace and your hope and your joy, which are in abundance. The well will never run dry, will never run out. You will never give up on us. You look for us, you search for us, you seek us and you save us. Jesus, tonight, I know for many of us, our anticipation is all about gifts under a tree or an email from work or a test result from a doctor's office. Jesus, tonight, I pray even in this space where our hopes and our dreams may be rooted in and based in things that we can buy or, or things that we can, can find out or, or, or things that, 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 that we have in, in and of ourselves. Father, tonight, I pray that you would show us that your hopes and dreams are so much bigger than any of those things. And you sustain us even when our hopes and dreams fail us and let us down. Jesus, tonight may we remember why we celebrate Christmas. Because in the cry of a manger, in the cry of a, of a barn, the cry of a cave a few thousand years ago, the cry of a baby was the announcement the euangelion, the proclamation and declaration that life has come to us. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.